Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. You look wonderful. You look marvelous. So shout out to all of you. Shout out to the people listening through podcasts and other means. Uh, it's good to get together, worship God, and, and, and hear his word. really want to reiterate the importance of what Shauna just mentioned. Uh, the kingdom is, is not just about theory, for sure. It's not even just about our personal relation with God. It's about the people of God mobilizing uh, to, for action and impacting the world. And, and this here that we just shared is the bullseye of, of uh, action. Jesus said in Matthew 25, uh, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was homeless, you gave me a place to stay. So that's about as bullseye as you get. And so I really want to encourage you to uh, pick up a bag and fill it with the food that's listed there. Uh, we want to really you know, stockpile uh, food for the people in need and, and, uh, and volunteer and be a part of this, this ministry uh, to the homeless. We've got um, that. God's really put that on our heart uh, over the last year. And we're dreaming dreams and looking at ways that we can uh, more systematically be uh, showing the love of Christ to people who are without a home. Uh, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Did I say that already? I don't know if I did or not. I always forget to take my ADD medication on, on my Sunday morning. I don't know why that is. It's, it's really when I need it most. Anyways, in case you didn't know, I'm, I'm Greg, and uh, good to be here. Uh, hey, before I get into the word, uh, just a little, one, little, one little piece of bragging rights, if we may. Our, ba- our softball team took the state championship for the church league in the state of Minnesota. Woo! <laughs> Hit it out of the park, way to go, way to go. Uh, very, very proud of you. That's, that's, that's great. We're not going to you know, brag on that too much. But Now, there's a little dispute about, I mean, the team that we beat for the championship claims that they're predestined to lose, but we're saying that we just chose to practice more. Well, I think the score settles that matter. <laughs> All right, never mind. So we're, of course, in the book of Luke, been in the book of Luke for a long time. Hopefully we'll get it done before the Lord comes back, but we don't know, we don't care. Uh, so we're up to Luke chapter 22, and we're picking up where we left off last week. Um, this is where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The folks are coming out to uh, arrest him. Judas betrays him with a kiss. We saw that last week. Uh, disciples say, you know, to Jesus, should we use our swords? Peter doesn't wait for an answer, starts swinging his swords, cuts off a guard's ear. Jesus says that's not how we do warfare in the kingdom. Here's how we do warfare in the kingdom, and he heals the, the guard's ear. And then Jesus gets arrested, which brings us up to uh, verse 54. Oh, and by the way, this is uh, titled Old Peter, New Peter. That's the title of this message. Old Peter, New Peter. Luke 22 says, Then seizing him, grabbing him, they led him away and took Jesus into the house of the high priest. Now this is happening in the evening time. Uh, and they take him to the high priest and that's where they're going to try him. Which shows you that this is not a legitimate trial. This is not where you try people. Uh, in the house of the high priest, but that's where they take him. It's a kangaroo court here. Peter followed at a distance, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, and that shows you that this high priest's house was a wealthy house. They had a courtyard there, and so the, the uh, soldiers who were out there arresting Jesus and probably some other stragglers who had heard about it, they're gathered in the courtyard. They sit down there, and they have a little bonfire. It's getting cool in the night. Um, and Peter sat down with them. Then a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight, and she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. Then about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. 
Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. It simply means dawn was breaking. Uh, roosters were the uh, alarm clock of the first century and are still in, in many parts of the world. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So there must have been a way, if, if either Jesus had been brought out in the courtyard or there was a looking through the, the doorway, caught Peter's eye as he's out in the courtyard. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before, and this is a, a prophecy that was given at the Last Supper. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. When Peter remembered that, he went outside the courtyard and wept bitterly. Pray with me here. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium, every person listening through podcasts or any other means. Uh, I thank you, God, that you are actively, passionately involved in their life. We pray, Lord God, that you would be involved as this word goes forth, as they hear this word, God, that you'd be preparing our minds and hearts to receive it at a deep and profound way and confront things that need to be confronted and strengthen things that need to be strengthened. Uh, God, to build your kingdom in us and through us, to free us from the bondage to the world's way of thinking about things and liberate us to see other people and to see ourselves and to see the world in a, in a, in a kingdom mindset. Holy Spirit, only you can build your kingdom. You use words to do it, but it's all about you. So we surrender this to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said. Amen. And all of God's people said. Amen. Yeah, as Norm said. Okay, so here, here's two questions. Two uh, fundamental questions uh, about this passage. It's always good to ask questions as you confront the word. It's how you get digging deeper to it. So question number one is this. How is it that Peter, who had... Uh, Throughout the Gospels, he, he seems so brave. He's got all this bravado. He's macho. He's, he's the testosterone apostle. You know, he's, just, he, he's always the one who, whenever Jesus talks about suffering, he goes, no, no, we're not going to let you suffer. We will fight for you and all that. He seems so brave. And yet here, like that, he turns into a complete coward. How is that possible, that incredible change from going very brave, very bold, full of bravado to turning to this milk-toast wimp? Uh, how is that possible? Here's a second question. That's closely related to this first one, as we'll see here in a little bit. Why did Jesus give this prophecy? What's the point of this prophecy? You will deny me three times. Why say that? And some commentators, they treat it almost like a parlor trick, like he was just sort of like showing off what he knows. And they don't talk about the purpose of it all. They, 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 they you know, use it to try to uh, draw questionable inferences about the ontological status of facts in the future and things of that sort. But the important question is, why did Jesus give this? What's the point? Was he just trying to shame Peter? I don't think so. Usually in the Bible, when God gives a prophecy, the purpose is to warn people to change from the, the, the course they're going to, pre, to, to uh, prevent from coming under judgment. It's not to announce what is certainly going to happen. It's to announce what will happen if things don't change. And the reason you announce it is to try to change things. The Greeks were all into this divination and, and you know, uh, tea leaf reading and uh, ways of trying to discern the future because they thought the future was faded. And so they're trying to find out what is going to happen. But Hebrews had a very different conception. Uh, they understood that, that the decisions of people help shape the future. And so when, when God gives a prophecy about the future, it's usually to warn people to change and therefore change the future. But here, Jesus isn't doing that. At least it doesn't look like it. He doesn't say, Peter, I'm warning you, you know, if you don't change, 
uh, you're going to deny me. No, he says, you will deny me. What is the point of doing that? Now, I think both questions can begin to be answered when we make one observation. It's an observation that I make frequently because I think it's very important. And that is that the ancient Jews, first century Jews, were looking for a Messiah who would help liberate them from Roman oppression. They were looking for a victorious Messiah, a Messiah who would help them win, a a Messiah who would conquer on their behalf, a Messiah who would make their enemies pay. That's what they were looking for. And Peter was clearly the most enthusiastic supporter of that view of the Messiah. He believed that the Messiah was going to be his prize fighter and would liberate Israel. I'm convinced that when Peter took out that sword and started you know, swinging it, he was convinced that Jesus would jump on board and now call down legions of angels and uh, annihilate uh, Israel's enemies. That's why he didn't wait for an answer. He's convinced that Jesus is going to be the prize fighter Messiah that everyone was looking for. And see, if we understand that, Peter's perception of Jesus, now we can begin to understand why he appears so brave when Jesus is around, but turns into a coward the minute Jesus is gone. When Jesus is around, he's thinking, I got my prize fighter here. You know, he sees Jesus doing the miracles and whatever, and, 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 and he knows the power of God is on this guy. And, and he's convinced that when push comes to shove, literally, well, then Jesus will finally start doing what the Messiah is supposed to do and will wage war against Rome. And that's why he doesn't wait for an answer. He just starts swinging it, waiting for Jesus to come on board. He's like a little kid in the playground surrounded by bullies. But the kid's holding his dad's hand, and his dad is this prize fighter. And so the, 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 the boy's like, oh, yeah, you want to take me on? Well, my dad's going to kick your butt. And that's how Peter's viewing Jesus, but as soon as he gets arrested, as soon as Jesus gets arrested, it's real clear that Jesus is not going to fulfill the stereotypical role of a Messiah and conquer the Romans. And so now Peter's cowardice comes out. In fact, what was fueling his militant view of the Messiah was fear. In fact, what fuels all militant religion is fear. People are afraid of different things, and so they grab hold of a, of a, of a, a prize fighter view of God or of the Messiah uh, as, as, a, as a source of security. But as soon as that source of security is gone, Peter's true character comes out. It may be kind of surprising, I think, that Peter could still hold this view of the Messiah after sitting under Jesus' ministry for three years. I mean, think about it. For three years, Jesus is saying, I've come to give my life. I've come, uh, you know, not to be served, but to serve. For three years, Jesus is saying, you also must expect to suffer and follow my example. For three years, he's been hearing uh, uh, Jesus teach about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and never retaliating and leaving all vengeance to God and so on and so on and so on. And yet here at the very end, Peter still is holding on to that prize fighter view of Jesus. It's kind of surprising. But we shouldn't be too surprised, I don't think, because after all, All of that teaching is in the Bible today and has been there for 2,000 years. And yet I submit to you that many Christians still hold to a prize fighter view of Jesus. Uh, They still see religion as sort of the way that that, God's going to come on the side of them, the righteous, and overcome the evil folks and control the world and fix the world and, 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 and conquer the enemies. And very few, or at least comparatively few, see the importance of following the example of Jesus going to the cross. That mindset, that Peter mindset of, 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 of using God to conquer your enemies is all over the place. 
The idea of God is sort of macho and, and the Arnold Schwarzenegger with the sword kind of a thing. It's all over the place. Uh, someone sent me a clip of a well-known pastor uh, a few weeks ago um, who in a recent sermon said this. He says, uh, uh, Jesus is a prize fighter. That's where I get the phrase from. He called Jesus the prize fighter. Jesus is a prize fighter. And uh, uh, he is committed to make certain people bleed. He says, I can't worship this idea of Jesus, this peace-loving, uh, effeminate, hippie uh, view of Jesus uh, as this sort of peace-loving. I can't, I can't, here's what he said, I can't worship a guy I can beat up. And the minute I heard that, I thought to myself, dude, you already crucified him. So how can you not worship a guy you can beat up when you're called to worship the one that you crucified? But see, that idea is all over the place. There's something about, there's something about our fallen nature that, that uh, uh, we, 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 out of our fear, we want to have a Savior who will be on our side and against their side, a, a, a Savior who will further our agendas, a, a, a Savior who will help us win, a Savior who's just there to protect us. Uh, for a savior who's going to be on the side of the righteous, which of course is us, and will conquer the evildoers, which of course is them. Part of our fallen nature wants that. Peter exemplifies it, and uh, it's all over the place today. And if you have that prize fighter view of Jesus, well then the idea of getting crucified out of love for your enemies looks foolish, and it looks weak, it looks hippie, it looks effeminate. It looks like a guy you can beat up, because in some sense it is. And yet we find in the New Testament over and over and over and over again, don't we, uh, the call of Jesus to follow his example going to the cross, the call of Jesus to love our enemies, serve our enemies, bless our enemies, turn the other cheek, and so on and so on. It's all right there as clear as can be. And yet we often, like Peter, just don't want to hear it. It's, it's a te testimony, I think, to how tenaciously we can cling to self-serving beliefs when we're afraid. We want the, the Savior who's going to do our bidding and kick our enemies behinds. But the reality is, as I said last week, kingdom people, and this is, this, is, this is the center of everything, we are called to let go of all fear, not live in fear, and we are called to trust God in his competency to run the world, which relieves us of the responsibility of trying to be God and trying to fix the, the world on our terms. And so out of the peace that comes from surrendering our confidence to God, we're called to simply live in faithfulness. We're called sometimes to look foolish in a world that worships power. And to some degree, in a context of, of a church that still continues to worship power like the old Peter did, in that context, we're called to sometimes look foolish because instead of retaliating, we, we take up the cross and follow him. Peter had this false view of the Messiah, false view of God, false view of the kingdom, false view of leadership. He had a prize fighter view of Jesus. And that had to go. If God was ever going to use Peter to build the, the Jesus-looking kingdom, well, then the prize fighter view had to go. And I submit to you that this is why. This is why Jesus gave the prophecy at the Last Supper. Uh, God was setting Peter up to reveal something to him about his true character. And about the true character of God and of his Messiah. And so God doesn't cause people to sin. He didn't cause Peter to sin. But God knew Peter's character. Behind all that false bravado was the center of fear. And so God wanted to expose that. And so three times he has people notice Peter. Now Peter was a public figure. They'd been teaching in the city for, for a full week here. People knew Peter. 
Uh, but if God needed to cause just three and only three to notice him, he could easily do that. But God orchestrated this in order to squeeze out of Peter this, this false view of the Messiah and, and this fear-based kind of theology he had in order to squeeze into Peter the truth about the kingdom and the truth about the Messiah and the truth about what it is to be a leader in the kingdom. So this whole thing was structured for Peter's transformation to make him a fit leader in the kingdom that Jesus was coming to build. You see this really clearly in John. After the resurrection, Jesus rises from the dead and Peter can finally begin to see that, oh, I see the way of the cross actually wins in the world in the long term. Not necessarily in the short term, but in the end, it's the way of the cross that will transform the world. And, and, and so we have this discussion in John chapter 22 between Peter and Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. And here we find three times, corresponding to the three denials of Peter, three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter says, yes, I love you. And then three times Peter, uh, Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And that threefoldness doesn't make any sense unless you're comparing it. You see it as a sort of response to the threefold denial of Peter. Let's pick up the conversation at the third time Jesus says, do you love me? The third time Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was offended. He was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know I was going to deny you three times. Why are you asking, why are you asking me three times, do I love you? You know that I love you. So Jesus said a third time, then feed my sheep. And then Jesus gives another prophecy about Peter. This one, however, is not about how Peter will deny him. This one is about how Peter will now follow him because he finally understands what following him means. And so Jesus says, truly I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. He's telling a little parable here. You put on your own clothes, your own persona bravado and you went whatever you wanted in fact you tried to loop me in on what you wanted which was to conquer the romans and be victorious when you were younger the old peter used to do that but when you are old here's the prophecy you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which peter would glorify god his martyrdom would glorify God. And then Jesus said a final time, follow me. Now that Peter has learned the lesson, now that the false view of the Messiah, the conquest militant prize fighter view of the Messiah had been squeezed out of him, and now that the Christ character is being squeezed into him, and now that he saw that when the resurrection happens, the way of the cross actually wins the world, now he's finally ready to follow Jesus. And now he's finally ready to be a leader in the Jesus-looking kingdom. Now he's finally ready to feed people food, the word which will transform them into a Christ-like character. Finally, Peter gets what the, what the Messiah was all about. Finally, Peter understands the true nature of God, the true nature of Christ, the true nature of the kingdom, and the true nature of being a leader in the kingdom. So finally, he's, he's equipped to feed the sheep. And he'll demonstrate by that by the fact that he'll glorify God at the end of his life by being crucified the exact same way that Jesus was. We know from church tradition that Peter was crucified. Interestingly enough, however, he was crucified upside down. The old Peter wouldn't have gone that way. The old Peter was a sword singing, swinging, I'm going to control, I'm going to fix Peter. This Peter understands that the way you glorify God is not through conquest, but through faithfulness 
even to the point of the cross. And we see this new Peter's character, this beautiful Christ-like character coming out in his writings in the New Testament. He's got two letters to churches in the New Testament. Uh, look what he says here in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's writing to Christians who are facing persecution. Uh, they might soon be fed to lions or have to watch their kids be fed to lions. Peter says this, It is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. Because you know, as I finally learned, what God is really like. Knowing who God is, you can know that it's commendable when you suffer uh, unjustly for doing what is right. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, the suffering unjustly. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. What Christ did, he didn't do just do for us, but he did it as an example. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. This is the same guy who a little while earlier when, when it looked like they were going to suffer unjustly when they came to arrest Jesus, he pulled out a sword and started swinging it. This is a new Peter here. The old Peter would have said something like this because we saw how he acted when he was being unjustly persecuted in the Garden of Gethsemane. The old Peter would have said, hey, Christians, if you suffer unjustly, well, we're not going to take it anymore. If you suffer unjustly, you stand up for your rights, and you can call on the prize fighter Jesus, and he'll be on your side. In the name of righteousness, you will overcome the evildoers. The old Peter would have just got out that bravado and looped Jesus into that whole thing, but this is not the old Peter talking. This is the new Peter talking. And so this Peter says, no, when you're suffering unjustly, you know, this is what you're called to. This is what the kingdom is all about. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And it may mean that you die. And in fact, the new Peter did die. This is the kingdom. Putting off the old Peter, fight for your own rights mindset, and putting on that new Peter mindset, which is the mind of Christ, the image of Christ. And so we have to ask this question to ourselves. We have to live in this question. As we confront various people, various issues, various things going on in the world and in our culture, do we exemplify a new Peter mindset and heart and disposition? Or do we exemplify an old Peter mindset, heart, and disposition? And it's not an either-or thing. If you're surrendered to Christ, you're probably you know, kind of a mixture of both. I find that around some Peter, uh, around some Peters, around some people, around some people, whether your name's Peter or something else, around some people, I, I, I'm a new Peter. I, I have no trouble being just this wonderful Christian guy. But there are other people and other situations where it's not so much. So we got to live in the question, what is our attitude, our mindset? And, and see, this, this applies to every area of our life, to every relationship in our life, to every issue in our life. What is our attitude? Is it to, to fix, to conquer, to, to take over, to win? Or is it to be faithful even to the point of death? It applies to everything. Let me give you a couple examples. A number of years ago, there was a couple in our church came for a, a, a little while uh, to Woodland Hills Church and then, then left. Uh, but they were good friends with another couple in this church, and that's how I kind of found out about what was going on there. And what was going on there was this. Um, the husband had gotten a promotion, uh, offered a promotion in his business. Uh, it was a nice pay raise and more prestige and a number of other things, but it required that they move out of state. His wife felt that the, that would not be good for the family. Their support group was here. Their family, their friends was here. They were very dependent on that. And, and, and so she asked him and then begged him and implored him not to take the family to this different state. 
But this man believed that he was the head of the household, which in his understanding meant that he gets to decide what everyone else is going to do. And so he, as the head of the household, just decided he was going to bring his family to this different state and accept this promotion. Not, not long after that, his wife took a dive, went into a deep depression, had a nervous breakdown. Their older son eventually ran away from home, got involved in some, other, some drugs and stuff. And the last I heard is the family had become completely undone. Now, here's the thing. You and I could debate whether the teaching in the New Testament about the man being the head of the household, whether that's just part of the cultural trappings of the New Testament, similar to the allowance for slavery, or whether that's part of the timeless teaching of the New Testament. We could debate that, and that'd be a nice discussion. But what we need to understand here is this, is that it doesn't really make much difference so long as you have a new Peter kind of understanding about what headship is. This man had an old Peter understanding of what headship was. He thought that being head of something meant that you're the boss, you get to have your way, uh, you have the tiebreaker vote, you get to impose your will on others. That's old Peter kind of thinking. You think God is authorizing you to be the boss and the controller and the manipulator of other people. A new Peter understanding of headship isn't like that at all. A new Peter understanding of headship is that, that if you have authority over others, you use that to come under them and you use it to serve them and you use it to bless them and you use it to empower them. We see Paul getting at this kind of headship in Ephesians 5. In the first century, men had all the authority as they have in, 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 in most cultures. And so Paul is going to give a new instruction to how men, males, husbands in the first century are to use their power. First, he says in Ephesians 5.21, uh, submit to one another. Husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, he's saying, both you guys, now you start coming under one another. That's what the word submit means. Knowing who Christ is out of reverence for Christ, knowing what Christ has done for us, you start coming under one another, reversing the, the fallen paradigm of mar marriage given to us in Genesis 3, where people are always trying to control one another. We're to go in the opposite direction. And both the husband and the wife need to take it on themselves to be submitting to one another. But then Paul turns specifically to the husband who's got all the power and basically says, husbands, you have to initiate this because you're the one who has the power to initiate this. And he says this, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. You want to be head of the household? This is what it looks like. Be head like Christ was head. It's not a controlling kind of a headship. It's a serving kind of a headship. You want to be head of the household? More power to you. Frankly, I prefer the egalitarian thing where we both take responsibility for this. But if you want to take responsibility for being the head, what that means here is this. When you have a fight, you have to take the initiative to submit first. Uh, if, if forgiveness is needed, you take the initiative. Husband, head of the household, you take the initiative to ask for forgiveness first. When you can't agree on something, you defer to your wife. You take it upon yourself to have the responsibility to bleed for her the way Christ bled for his bride. To come under her and empower her and hold her up. And notice... Jesus did this to the church to make her holy because she sure wasn't holy ahead of time. Uh, we were enemies of God, the Bible says. We were at war with God. We were aliens from God. And yet while we were yet sinners, a bride who was sinful, Christ died for us in order to win us over. That's how he, he transforms us. So what it means is husbands who want to be head of the household, and I think both people should take this responsibility, but let's just talk to men because it's fun right now. Um, <laughs> 
you know, it means you don't get to keep score on anything. It doesn't matter if you think she doesn't deserve it. She's being a mean wife, a nasty wife, a picky wife. She's just not appreciating you. She doesn't laugh at your jokes anymore. You could do a whole lot better. It doesn't matter what you think about it. However undeserving you think she is, your job is to be like Jesus towards the church, which means you bleed, which means you come on to, you sacrifice for. And I don't know a lot of wives that would object to that, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that, that, that's a good thing. But see, that's a new Peter kind of understanding of headship. It's, it's servant. You come under. Now, now, someone asked me at the end of the, the, the last service, or uh, last night, well, what if the husband was actually in the will of God? What if he was supposed to take this, this thing and the wife was just being rebellious? Well, here, here's how a new Peter understanding would, 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 would uh, operate. If you really feel God's called to do something here, um, then you pray that God would be working in, in your wife's heart as well. Because it's never God's will to blow apart families. And so you pray, oh God, you know, I, I, here's what I'm sensing, but, but work in the, my family's life. And then you, through loving her and serving her, you try to maybe bring her on board. But you also listen, because for all you know, God's talking to her. And, and your job is to listen to what God's saying through her. In this case, I think it was very clear, so far as I can determine, that if the wife was in touch with what God's will was more than this husband, who was pretty much enamored by this cool promotion he was going to get. But it doesn't matter. You, you have a humble, gentle attitude that listens and receives and serves and blesses. And then you trust God. If this is really something God wants, he'll be working to build consensus. And then you move together. That headship builds, builds consensus uh, around something that you think is from God. It applies to every area of our life. Here's another example. A couple shared with me some time ago about their former church and uh, how difficult it was to leave this church. The pastor clearly had an old Peter paradigm of what it is to be a pastor, a leader. He was a control freak, as pastors sometimes are. And um, uh, in the name of keeping the congregation holy, this pastor inserted himself into everybody's business, legislating what they could and could not do, even to the point of sometimes claiming to get words from God about what parents were supposed to name their kids. This couple left the church because they just didn't agree with the name that God had allegedly given him. And it was, it was painful. That was their community. See, that, that's an old Peter paradigm where you think that, that the, 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 a position of authority means you get to control and, and, and you get to have your way and impose it on others. There is an important place for leadership in the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not a democracy. There's supposed to be leaders. But leadership in the kingdom, the new Peter understanding of the kingdom, the Jesus understanding of the kingdom, leadership is not about controlling or manipulating or getting your way. Uh, it's a spirit-led leadership. It's not manipulation-led. It's, it's a leadership that is there to empower others to do the work of ministry. It's not there so the people will empower you to be boss of everything. As Jesus said to Peter, leadership in the kingdom is about feeding the sheep, not feeding off the sheep, stroking your ego by the sheep, as sometimes happens. And if you ever find yourself in a congregation where you're feeling manipulated and controlled and, and, and the pastor's feeding off of you rather than feeding you, I encourage you to run away. Uh, I, I, I mean, if God calls you to stay and try to change things, well, then, then that's God's business. But all other things being equal, you've got to find a ministry where if you're not called to be a leader, you're called to be a follower, and there has to be a trust there, a spirit confirmation there. You're feeling empowered to do the work of ministry. You're learning. You're being fed. That's what the kingdom is based on, and that's how it's supposed to go. Run from anything that's not like that. And as you can almost anticipate, given this pastor's old Peter paradigm, he controlled a lot through fear. 
As I said last week, when, when, when people are afraid, uh, they'll, they'll, they're much more inclined to surrender all say-so over to the person who claims to solve their problems. So this pastor, as happens all too frequently, he controlled through fear. He, he just got his congregation worked up in all sorts of fear frenzies. So he got the congregation worked up in the fear frenzies about any politician that disagreed with him was a socialist because it's going to take over America. And he got the congregation wrapped up in fear frenzies about Muslims. Oh, Muslims, they're going to impose their Islamic law on us and change our way of life. And, and, and their, their, their religion is a demonic religion and, and it's full of violence. And he got them into a fear frenzy over illegal immigrants because they're going to come and steal our jobs and they're going to change our way of life. And before you know it, we're not going to be talking English anymore. And he got the congregation into a fear frenzy over, over gay because they're destroying their American family. It's not the heterosexual couples with their 50% divorce rate that's, that, that's harming families. It's the gay people. And, and, and he got them in a fear frenzy over the liberals because the liberals want to take away our right to own guns, which every Christian, of course, wants. And, 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 and they're going to take away our right to call sin, sin. We can't even call people sinners anymore, and that's our favorite thing to do. And so he got the congregation in this fear frenzy. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. Thankfully, you have me. <laughs> Follow me and I'll lead us through this wilderness. You see, wherever there's fear, people are going to surrender stuff to you. And leaders throughout history, Christian and otherwise, have been specialists in, in, in creating fear. Cable news is a specialist at installing fear. The little niche news markets that's going on now. Be afraid, be very, very afraid, and that's why you need us. A lot of Christian talk radio are specialists in installing fear. It's all over the place now. A propaganda of fear. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. And uh, this, this old Peter kind of thinking is on the rise here in America once again. And it's not really surprising either because you look at it historically. Whenever people are suffering economically, fear goes through the ceiling. That's the, that's the main indicator. And, and whenever fear goes through the ceiling, you find this historically. People start to get paranoid. Out of their fear, they start to look at people who are a little bit different, a little bit other, the aliens, the other, as, as, as hostile and threatening. And invariably, sooner or later, they find scapegoats to blame their distress on. It's like a stress reliever. Hitler never could have done what he did if Germany hadn't been in this, these, at this economic, these economic straits because of the, the First World War. And he used that to his own advantage by installing fear of the Jews. They're going to take over the world. And people will do crazy things they otherwise wouldn't do when they're operating out of their fear. I don't care what your politics is about those kind of issues. We could disagree upon that. But whatever happens, folks, don't let yourself be caught up in this demonic fear frenzy. In the kingdom of God, there is no place for fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Amen? God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but a power of love, of self-control. And we are called as kingdom people to have this trust in God. Let God be God. He's competent at running the world. You can trust him. You know, there are things that happen that are not God's will, but he's the Lord of lords and the king of kings oversees all the creation. He's very good at doing his job, I'm told, in his word. And we can trust him for that. Just trust him for that. We don't have to be God. We don't have to be trying to fix people, control people, being afraid of people. No, our one job, it's very, very simple, is to be like Jesus, look like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve like Jesus, and if necessary, die like Jesus. That's the call of the kingdom. And to trust that God will use that to further his kingdom in this world. And you may not see it until the resurrection, like Peter, but we trust in faith that when the resurrection happens, we will then see that God's way, the way of the cross, the way of service, the way of humility is what wins the day, not the way of the sword. So much fear going on today. 
I've, I've seen it recently, you have too, uh, especially directed towards Muslims. Ever since 9-11, people have been, you know, a lot of people are afraid of Islam, you know. They're all, Muslims are, are just a quarter inch away from becoming terrorists. And, and there's a fear there, and, and they're a growing population, so people are afraid that they're going to eventually become a majority and pass Islamic laws and make us all Muslims. You know, think about this. Your Muslim neighbor probably does believe that, uh, does hope for the time when the whole world will be Muslim. That's probably true. Should you be afraid of that? Think about this. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you believe that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? You, you want Jesus to be Lord of the whole world and everyone to acknowledge that. Does that make you a threat? No, it just means you believe in your faith, just like they do. Uh, there's nothing to fear there. And, and it, you have to ask yourself this question, do you really believe it or not that Jesus is Lord and that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? Because if you believe that, well, then you're not going to sit around being worried that Islam's going to take over the world and trying to get people afraid of that to do something radical about that. See, the kingdom response to Islam, as with everything else, is not by doing a Peter sword-swinging thing in the garden. The response to Islam is not to uh, be burning a bunch of Qurans like these people are planning on doing to commemorate 9-11 down in Florida, which is about the best way to recruit terrorists I can possibly imagine. That's not a kingdom response to Islam. The kingdom response to Islam is this. You have a Muslim neighbor. Don't fear that neighbor. No, you love that neighbor. Serve that neighbor. Bless that neighbor. Pray for that neighbor. Give food for that neighbor. Embrace that neighbor. Befriend that neighbor. Welcome that neighbor. And maybe, maybe if Muslims saw more Christ-like love from Christians rather than this, this fear-based hostility, I'm thinking some of them would actually be persuaded and, and give Jesus a serious look. We're called to love and ser serve by putting off all fear. That's the new Peter mindset that replaces the old Peter mindset. So I end with this question. And as always, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us be honest. Right now, Holy Spirit, help us to see, are there areas in our life people in our life, maybe issues in our life that activate the fear button, that make us afraid, and therefore activate an old Peter impulse in us. Holy Spirit, help us to see this. If you want to close your eyes and just try to let the Holy Spirit, as you yield to the Holy Spirit as he's revealing stuff to you, we need to get that squeezed out of us, just like Peter needed it squeezed out of him. Are there areas in your life, people in your life, issues in your life where out of your fear you're trying to control, where there's anger, where there's manipulation, an attempt to impose your will on others, you're going to fix the world or you trust somebody else to fix the world. Let the Holy Spirit give you a representation of that person or that issue or that group, whatever it is. And can you here in this moment surrender that fear to God and even pray this prayer, Father, I trust that you are competent at being God. I let go of the need to try to save the world from that person or that group. I relinquish all control over to you. I surrender it to you. And then can you pray a blessing on that person or that group? Lord, bless these people. If need be, pray the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross with his last breath. Father, forgive them. Hope for their salvation. Hope for their forgiveness, their restoration. Let go of all vengeance. Trust God. And then pray, Jesus, Father, give me a Jesus heart towards that person, towards that group, such that I'd be willing to die, even at their hands, if doing so would bless them 
express your love towards them. Give me a Jesus attitude, a Jesus heart, a Jesus life towards those people, towards that person. It may be a sibling. It may be a spouse. It may be a neighbor that you're thinking about. Or maybe it's a group. Maybe it's gays. Maybe it's Muslims. Maybe it's liberals. Who knows? Let it go to God. Your one job is to love. That's not hippie. That's not weak. No, that's faithfulness. That's faithfulness. And it's the strongest power in the universe. Can you let it go? Just let it go. Just let it go. Trust God. Let go of the fear. Embrace Christ-like love. As I close here in in the prayer, I want to invite you, if God's working in your life about something right now, don't leave. Stay seated or you can come forward. We'll have a prayer team up here and if you want to pray with these folks for any need whatsoever, please feel free to come forward. Remember that there's homework, as always, out at the hub for you to chew on this message throughout the week and there's some exercises to be involved in and the homeless shelter, the homeless project uh, is, is out there. I encourage you to sign up for that. But Father, as we leave this place, we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would just be always squeezing into us the new Peter attitude, the Christ-like attitude, the servant attitude, the willingness to sacrifice of our time and our money, our resources for other people, even our enemies' attitude. And squeeze out of us all fear. Everything, every element of mistrust in you. Squeeze it out. Squeeze it out, Lord. Because you've not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said one last time. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.